the novel universe with Ashley and Dawn, book club buddies who love to read YA fiction. We'll discuss the good, the bad, the ugly, and oh my gosh, we need to talk about this right now. I'm Ashley, the fantasy architect. And I'm Dawn, the criticizer of books. So grab something sweet or salty and join our universe. Hello and welcome back to the Novel Universe with your host Dawn, the criticizer of books. It is just me today because I wanted to do a separate podcast about As the Shadow Rises by Katie Rose Poole. It is book two in the There Will Come a Darkness series. Ashley has not read this series and I wanted to um, do an an extensive podcast, if you will, because this book is quite dense. So... FYI, this does come out September 1st. And as I said, this is book two in There Will Come a Darkness series. It is a very good series. It is by Katie Rose Poole. If you have not read it, you should read it immediately. I want to apologize up front for any noises that you might hear in the background. We have fireworks going off. My neighbors are loud as hell. So that might happen. It is Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. And... Let's get into this review. I'm going to do a spoiler free and then I will go into spoilers. Uh, I am going to give a couple of disclaimers. First, I would like to say that this is not like Six of Crows. This book is being described for fans. If you like Six of Crows, I'm seeing this all over Goodreads. And then people who are reviewing it on Goodreads are like, this isn't like Six of Crows at all. And they're really upset about it. No, it is not like Six of Crows, so please don't think that it is. That is the publisher's way of just trying to get people to read the book. The only way it's like Six of Crows is that there's five different POVs. That is the only similarity. Uh, Secondly, I really want to stress this really, really badly, is that this is not a fluffy series. This book is a critical book. Um, It has received a Morris nominee which is for a debut award given to a debut author and that award usually doesn't go to fantasy or nominations they don't go to fantasy books so because it is like an award nominated book it is a critical read which means there's going to be a lot of plot and a lot of discussion and critique and just a lot going on this book it's not a fun fluffy read so if you're going into the series thinking that what you're going to get you're going to miss a lot of what's going on you could probably read this book on the surface I think Katie Rose has made it so that if you read this book on the surface you'll probably get some relationship stuff in there and some romance and a little bit of politics and some action but if you're only reading a surface level you're really missing out on the social commentary and all the really good politics and the world building that's going on here so if you decide to read the series which you should you're gonna have to take notes like I read the first book twice And I still missed something in the first book. And in this book, I took hella notes and I still had to go back for another couple of hours because I missed a lot of stuff. So hopefully I'm not turning you off. But if you like a really good critical book, if you're looking for a book club book or um, a buddy read book or something and you really want like a critical fantasy, then this is the series for you. Okay, so um. 
I'm assuming that if you are listening to this, you have already read book one. Um, Even the spoiler free section is going to have spoilers in it because I'm going to sum up what happens at the end of book one. So if you have not read this yet, book one, I would suggest you turn off now because I'm I'm even though it's a spoiler free edition, I'm still about to spoil it for you. So turn off now because here I go. All right, so this is the spoiler-free edition. I'm going to start with my dislikes, and then I'll go into my likes, and uh, just like normal. Um, first, I gonna I'm gonna give my well. Let's do the plot synopsis. Okay, so at the end of book one, all of our main characters are off on their own mission. So Ifira is off to find the chalice. Hassan and Kepri are off to take down the Herophant and take back um, Nazira, the city of the capital city of Herat. Um, Anton and Jude. Jude has lost his grace and Anton was kind of suicidal and he feels kind of bad because he may have been the reason why Jude has lost his grace. He's also lost his blade. Um, Ephira has sorry I've got to turn off my phone Ifira and Baru Baru has basically told Ifira that she doesn't want her to kill people for her anymore and she needs to they need to separate and be on their own now and so um, Baru is off by herself to kind of redeem Hector's life he has been killed by Ifra, Ifra, Ifira, and so she is going to f- live her final days trying to not die in vain and like memorialize Hector in some sort of way. So, book two picks up with everybody off on their own mission. All right, so I gave originally I gave this book a four to five because, and I'll get into that in my dislikes. But after I went back through and like really, like figured out all the stuff that I missed I bumped it up to a four and a half I believe I gave the first book a four and a half um so far this is the highest rated book I have given this year it is the end of May and I've not given anything over 425 so so far this is the highest rated book I have given this year um yay finally something good uh okay so let's get into dislikes Uh, There's only a couple, obviously, because I gave this book a pretty high rating. But my first major dislike of the book is that it is kind of confusing. And I took a lot of notes. Like, my Kindle is chock full of fun notes that I took. But it still wasn't enough because I was still missing a lot. Um, You really do have to pay attention because there's a lot going on with the with um, there's a new mission that they have to go on and then there's the prophets and the prophecy and then all the harbingers have their own thing going on and then there's all these other minor major characters like the sacrifice queen and the necromancer king and king Vasily, like all that stuff and it all comes together but because there's so much going on in in all different parts of the book it, it it gets a little confusing so i'll get into all that in the spoiler edition but yeah it was a little confusing for me on the first time reading it through. The second thing that I didn't like was I found the Esha a little confusing, particularly Ephra's. Her name is not Ephra. Oh my God. Ephira. Ephira, I found her Esha confusing. It seemed to like not have a lot of rules. I don't know. It was just like, 
she controlled the chalice and then she didn't and then her Esha went in this person and this happened and I just got really confused um sometimes when I'm really confused like that I'll just like think that the book will just suss it out for me but it never really did so that was I consider that minor though it's not like a major part of the book or anything um and my last dislike was this book has one of my deal breakers that I don't that I don't like when I read a book and that's the sudden epiphanies and what I mean by that is when a character kind of at one moment just automatically figures something out to solve their problem and just to give you an example from the book um so one way to avoid it is to have other people around the character to kind of help them through. Hopefully I don't lose my voice. I sound like I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit. I apologize. Uh, but at one point in the book, when Ephira is trying to find the chalice, she has other people with her. And one of the characters with her is a historian. And so when Ephira is reading something and she doesn't know what a location is or a word is or a symbol is, her historian with her knows exactly what it is because they're a historian they know what they're talking about but when Ephira's on her own and she's just trying to like something happens and she doesn't know why and then a page later she's like oh I know and then Jude will go oh I know and then Anton will go oh I know it's like oh I call that the sudden epiphanies I kind of don't like that especially when they're on their own if another person is with them and they can kind of like talk it through or whatever that makes a little different but there were several instances of the sudden epiphanies so it bothered me enough for me to affect the rating um those are all my dislikes uh so let's get into the likes my the biggest like I have with this book is the the dialogue and the relationships be them familial or romantic or um friendship they were all quite mature for a YA novel. And by mature, I mean, it wasn't a lot of teen drama-rama. The discussions these teens were having and the conversations that they were having, which conversation discussions, same thing, but how they handled it was all very mature. And I appreciated that because that tends to be kind of tropey. These are the fireworks going off right now. I live by the park district that does all the fireworks. So that tends to be kind of tropey in YA when you have teens go through these very, well, not very teen, but they go through these issues. But then the way they solve it is like they 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 make really bad decisions and then eventually they grow because someone calls them out on their crap. And but it's after they made all these decisions and they're all really angsty and angry. And it's just like. It gets old after a while. And yes, they're teens. They're going to have teen drama-rama. I understand that. But in a book like this, these teens are tasked with ending the end of the world, like solving the end of the world crisis. That is not a teen issue to have. That's a very mature issue. And so they should handle it maturely. It's not like, oh, my math teacher hates me. It's not that kind of drama. It's they have to stop the world from ending. That's a huge responsibility that they have to take on. So I feel like the way they handle it needs to be much more mature than teen drama-rama. And just to give you an example of one of the one of the 
issues that's going on where it was done maturely and well was Ephira. Um, Ephira, on the surface, it looked like insta-love. I'm not going to say I'll go into it in the spoiler edition, but her situation looked like insta-love, but actually it wasn't. It was her making bad decisions, but the theme surrounding her is facing her demons and instead of her facing her demons she was leaning into them which was causing her to make horrible decisions and so she was having some really serious conversations or conversations with the the person that she was insta loving with and the reader and herself and another example a good example is jude jude is dealing with his faith just like he was in the first book and Um, This is a real life situation that many teens have. There are some teens who have taken a vow of chastity. Chastity? No, chastity. (laughs) And then they find themselves being confronted with that and maybe falling for another person. And then they are questioning their faith. That is not a teen issue. That is an issue that adults face as well. And... Some teens don't handle it correctly, just like some adults don't. They make bad decisions, what I mean to say, just like some adults make bad decisions. But there are some teens who really take their faith seriously or they take, even if it's not faith-based, maybe they're just like, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to save myself until I go to college or whatever. Um, And they take that very seriously. I'll just use the faith as an example because it's um, Jude's example. And they read their Bible, they ask their clergy, they talk to their friends, they do some self-reflection, like they have mature emotions and feelings and thoughts. And I think that a lot of authors do teens a disservice when they make their teens make these tropey, stupid decisions. It's like we can have mature conversations and mature ideas and concepts. It doesn't always have to be teen drama-rama. So I appreciated that Katie Rose did that. Um, I think all the characters were very well done. Um, trying to think here. There are a couple of new characters. Arash is one of them. Arash. I can't remember how to, I don't know how to say his name. I'm just going to call him Arash. He is with Hassan. He's a very interesting character. I thought he was very well, he was a minor, but he was very well done. Um, even Hassan, you know, Hassan is one character that Elise and I, we didn't really love him too much. Elise and I did a very thorough chapter by chapter um, discussion on the first book. If you want to go back through the archives and find that podcast, you can. It's like five different podcasts. Uh, so, yeah, I even liked Hassan a lot more in this book. But all of the characters are really going through some interesting things and the way she has written them it's it's quite it's quite well done so I'll go into each character and what their issues are in the spoiler section but I'm not gonna do that now but the characters are done very well her world is fantastic you can tell I can tell that she has outlined her book all the way through the series because Things that happened in book two were foreshadowed in book one. And I'm pretty sure things that happened in book three are going to be foreshadowed in this book. So I can tell she's really thought out her world. She has a lot of themes going on here, which once again makes book critical. Um, She doesn't write tropes. 
she writes against trope, which makes her book not predictable. Thank you. I hate a tropey book. I'm pretty sure we all hate a tropey book. Some tropes we do like. Some Sometimes we like the hate to love trope or the angsty girl. I don't know. You know all the tropes. I'm not going to list them. But Katie Rose writes against trope. And even from the first couple chapters, you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, here we go. We're off to the races here. So I really do like her writing style. Um, I like um, the way she tells the story. She, like I said, you can totally tell she has really thought out her story and um, it's done really well. So those are my likes. I'm going to end the spoiler free edition now because The spoiler edition is going to be quite long because there's a lot going on in this book. Um, Join us, myself and Ashley. Ashley will be back Friday. We are going to be discussing the ballad of songbirds and snakes. Snakes and songbirds? Songbirds and snakes? One of those by Suzanne Collins. That will be Friday, possibly Saturday. We, we record live on Friday. So if you want to join us on Podbean, just download the app and you can find us at The Novel Universe. Otherwise, thank you for joining us. If you're going to stay for the spoiler edition, it is starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay, so the spoiler edition is, it's for you, of course, but it is also for me because... I know that by the time book three comes out, I will have probably forgotten everything because this book is quite dense. So hi, Dawn from the I'm from the past and you're the future. Hopefully we still have a future. It is um, during the pandemic right now. So let's hope a year from now that we're still here. And now my neighbors are home and they're loud as hell. Yay. All right. So let's get into this story. Um, And this is, as I explain all of this, you're going to see how confusing it is for me. And hopefully I helped you out that you don't have to deal with all the confusion. But basically the plot of book two is that Anton needs to figure out how to stop the Age of Darkness. He needs to learn how to figure out how to stop Armageddon, basically. And all right, so let's start with the relics. I don't think the relics are mentioned in book one. There are four relics. These are the most important thing of this book. There are four relics. There's the crown of Herat, the pinnacle blade, almost said the sword of Gryffindor. Lord have mercy. The pinnacle blade, the oracle stone, and the chalice. Elizire, Elizire, I don't know how to say his name. Chalice. It's the chalice. We, We have heard the chalice before. These are the four relics, and they have a dual issue here. So, okay, I'm just going to go into the the prophets because I'm going to get into some terminology and you're going to be like, what? Okay, so let's get into the prophets. Now that you know what the relics are, let's get into the prophets. All right, so at the beginning of time, there was a god. He's just called God, just like our God. Well, our God has a name. But anyway, there's a God and God was too powerful to be able to communicate with the mortals. And so he had seven prophets to do that for him. 
And the prophets are all listed in book one. I don't know if they're listed in book two, not like as part of the big storytelling. Because I think in book one, someone's walking through town and they observe the pillars of the prophets. And then they say, this is Behesda, this is palace, whatever. So the seven prophets decided that, you know what? We don't need God. Let's kill him and take all the power for ourselves. And that's what they did. They killed God and they broke up his Esha into four different relics. They broke his body up into four different pieces. So the first piece was his head or his mind. And they put that in the relic, the crown of Herat. The crown of Herat was given, um, that relic was given to the first king of Herat by Prophet Nazira. If you recall, the capital city is Nazira, named after the prophet. The second body part that was broken up was the, um, was the heart. And the heart was put into the pinnacle blade. The prophet palace gave the pinnacle blade to the order. And the order gives it to the keeper of the word, which is passed down to each keeper of the word. And now Jude has it because he is the current keeper of the word. So Jude also has the, um, the grace of heart. I mean, let me go back to Hassan for a second. Hassan is not graced. But Hassan is very smart. Um, he reads a lot. He's quite intelligent. He's a thinker. He's a strategist, kind of, when he doesn't make lousy decisions. And so the crown is the God's mind. So he's, you know, he's smart. He's got, he doesn't have a grace, but he he's smart. All right. So the third one is God's sight. So they killed God, took his sight and put it in the Oracle Stone. We do not know... The prophet, well, we do, but I'll get to that at the end. I'll get to that in a second. A prophet gave somebody, we don't know who the person was he the prophet gave it to, the oracle stone. However, it has been passed down to Anton. Anton has the grace of sight. His ancestor, King Vasily, also had the grace of sight. I'll get to him in a second. And he has the grace of sight. And the relic was passed down to him. And finally... The chalice. The chalice, God's blood was put into the chalice, the last relic. Blood is, um, was given to the sacrificed queen from Prophet Behesda. I'll get to the sacrificed queen in a second. She's important. But anyway, the grace of blood is a healing grace. It has been passed down to Ephira. I'll also get to that, how she got it in a second. But Ephira, she has the power to heal, but she doesn't know how. All she knows how to do is kill. Okay, so those are the relics. And that's how they're all connected to these teens. And these are why these teens are in this story, because they are connected to their relic. All right, so the prophets disappeared we learned that from book one they disappeared one day not quite sure why I'm going to guess that like I said we don't we know which prophet gave the stone but we don't know who it gave it to 
we do know that King Vasily had it. And in book one, if you recall, there was a prophecy and King Vasily failed to fulfill his prophecy. The third, he, he, he fulfilled the first two parts of it, but the third part was that he was to be last in his line, but he's not because Anton is here. Anton is his descendant. So I think what happened is that, I don't know, somewhere along the line, he the prophecy wasn't going to come true. And Facili saw into the past. He's not supposed, that's not supposed to happen. I think he can only see into the future. Like Anton can see into the future. All the prophets can see into the future. And he saw what happened with God and the prophets killed God. And I don't know if he was trying to tell somebody and people didn't believe him, but he died a crazy person and he drowned himself. So I think that maybe the prophets were like, "Uh oh, somebody knows our secret. He has he's not the last of his line. If he was the last of his line, whatever, we could just go on doing whatever we want. But he has an heir. It is Anton. So we're going to disappear until the new prophet is found, Anton. And when Anton rises, we're going to kill him. I think that is why they disappeared. I think I'm not quite sure. Okay, so that is pretty much the story of I think I got all that right of the prophets. Um, let's go. Let's talk about the nameless woman. The nameless woman was in the first book. She was helping Anton try to scry. And then at the very end of the book one, she told Ephira, you need to find a chalice. The nameless woman um, ends up being very important. So, OK. Oh, my God. I got to go back to the relics for a second. All right. So the prophets bound the God in this red gate and the red gate is breaking and it's seeping out Esha and too much Esha causes destruction and war, which is kind of what's happening right now with the Herophant, Herophant, however you want to say it. And they need to bring the relics together to repair the gate. However, they can also bring God back if they bring the relics together. And that was where I was getting confused. But I figured it out. So then that's what they have to do. As I said before, they have to bring the relics together to repair the gate. And that's what happens at the end of the book. I'll get to that in a second. Back to the nameless woman. So the nameless woman... Um, is also the protector of the relics. So the something happened. They saw that the that the relics were causing a lot of havoc and they took the relics, the the Lost Rose Society. I don't think it's called Society, but it's this it's this group called the Lost Rose. They took the relics and they hid them away because it's too power. It's too powerful for people to have it. And the nameless woman is the leader of the lost rose and her job is to keep the relics hidden and not getting into the wrong hands aka the Arafant. and that's why she's telling Ephira you need to go find it and she's trying to help Anton scry so that he can go find his and she took the she found the blade when Jude lost it and she's giving it back to him and all of that turns out though that the nameless woman is also a prophet and she's the prophet that doesn't have a face she's the only one that doesn't have a face and she's called the wanderer but we still don't know who she gave the stone to it's never really said who she gave it to it just said that 
she had it and she gave it to somebody. And I'll get to her in a second and how she plays until the ending of the book. All right, so let's go to um, the chalice and why that's important. If you are confused, if this is a lot of information, not confused, but if this is a lot of information, this is this is what I spent like three hours trying to figure out because I missed all of that, all of that. I missed all of it. I don't know how, and I was taking notes, but I missed all of it. Anyway, the chalice was um, given to the sacrificed queen by prophet Behesda. And she, there was a plague going on in the town Behesda and the sacrificed queen sacrificed herself to save the town and her blood basically gave children and people the grace of blood and eventually they became healers and they healed each other and that's what stopped the plague but prophet behesta had another prophecy she got another prophecy that foretold that one of these kids who had the grace of blood was going to cause war and destruction and so she took the chalice and she was like she gave the daughters of mercy and was like protect it so that this doesn't happen Meanwhile, the Daughters of Mercy were like, okay, we're going to pay attention and we're going to watch all these kids who are graced and we're going to take these kids and we're going to train them so that so we can like thwart this prophecy. A boy comes through. He's too powerful. They're like, we don't like you. Get your ass to the desert and die. He doesn't die. He grows and gets angry and he rises up, goes to Daughters of Mercy, steals the chalice he starts killing people, taking all their Esha. He's getting more powerful and he builds an army. That's the Necromancer King. He was mentioned in the first book. He gets his army, but he is defeated and they banish him again to the desert. They don't kill him for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they're merciful. I don't know. So, so he's been off into the desert for 400 years and he's pissed. So Ephira's parents um her mom is pregnant with her but she's having a very difficult birth she is going to die in childbirth or the baby's gonna die and so the father's desperate he's like i need a healer they find um the necromancer king who's like oh he's like oh i'm a good samaritan i'll help you and he saves ephira but he puts his esha into her and when she grows up she can't control it and she kills everybody And the father's like, oh, my God, what did you do? I need you to fix it. And he's like, I will fix it. But you need to go and get that chalice for me. But he didn't get to it because Ephira accidentally killed them. So that is why Ephira is connected to the chalice. Because it is the grace of blood. And she's connected to the necromancer king. Okay, so now let's get to the Hierophant. The Hierophant... Um, I couldn't figure out what his motives were, but I did figure it out in the end. So he is actually Prophet Pallas. And Pallas, as I said earlier, is the prophet who gave the pinnacle blade to the order. And the order passes it down to the um, to the king, to the keeper of the word. Um, the Hierophant wants, he still wants power. What he wants, I believe his motive is to bring the God back because he's trying to find all of the relics. He wants to get to the red gate, put the relics together, bring the God back 
contain him and have God do his bidding. And he basically achieved that by the end of the book. And I'll get to that in a second. I keep saying that. (laughs) So that is the whole motive of the Hierophant. And that's also one of the themes in this book is power and how having too much power is bad. And at one point, Ilya, who makes a interesting return, he says to Ephira, the powerful get to make the rules and the weak have to follow. And I feel like there's a lot of people in this book who are who have too much power and they are reckless with it. So um, the Arafant is one of them. Um, Arash is one of them. He wants the crown because... Um, I didn't really get to talk about him too much, but I'll get to him when I get to when I talk about Hassan. But Arash wants power. The aunt at Lethia, she wants power and she's not going to do good things with it. The prophets, obviously, they wanted power. They didn't do good things with it. So power is a really big theme in this book and power is bad, essentially. Um, I think that is the overall um what I'm trying to say the overall folklore of this book or the world building what has to do with the relics and the whole plot is to not um get to get the relics and you know all that stuff so now let's talk about the characters and how they are quite interesting as I said in my spoiler free edition how the characters are really good and let's start with Jude because I think Jude is one of my favorite characters I like Jude a lot one reason is because he has a very interesting voice. He's He's got a voice that I've not heard in YA before, which makes him great because anytime an author can write a new voice in fiction is a good thing. It makes their book special. And Jude is still struggling with his faith. Um, you know, the whole thing with Hector and how he is the keeper of the word. He is supposed to not have feelings of sex basically or romance because the keeper of the word binds himself to a higher being to the order and his only job is to protect the prophet and and he's not supposed to have any kind of feelings about anybody but he's not feeling worthy because he does so he's questioning himself and his faith and everything um and in book two he starts to have romantic feelings for Anton. And I know, because at first I was thinking this too. I was like, didn't he love Hector? How could he just drop Hector like like a piece of crap and fall for Anton? But I think what happened in book one is when Hector and Ant- Hector and Jude were fighting on top of that building, Hector says to Jude, you want more, you want, you, you want more from me than what I can give you. Something like that. Like, I can't give you what you need me to give you. And Jude has, um, Jude can tell when people are lying to him and he could tell that Aunt, that Hector wasn't lying to him. And I think at that moment he had to let Hector go. Um, he still loves Hector. He still cares for Hector. He still wants to know what happens to him, but I don't think he loves him anymore because Hector it's unrequited. Hector doesn't love him back. So now he's with Jude and he's formed this, bond with Jude and he's also starting to fall in love with I'm sorry Jude Anton he's starting to fall in love with Anton and there were two pretty big moments in Jude's 
chapters. And one of them is at the very beginning of the book where Anton is about to run away. And he says to Jude, why do you keep putting your faith in something that keeps disappointing you? And he could be talking about two different things. He could be talking about the order because the order at this point, the order is about to exile him because even though he did his job, he found the prophet, he brought the prophet back, he protected the prophet, he, he lost his duty. He broke an oath, which was he kind of, he fell in for Hector. He left Hassan at one point to go find Hector and Penrose was like oh you broke your oath dude sorry you gotta tell the order <laughs> and they're about to kick him out so he's losing faith in the order because they don't have any faith in him or is he talking about is Anton talking about Anton because Anton has has disappointed Jude a couple times he tried to kill himself at the end of book one and Jude had to go save him and made him lose his grace. And at the beginning of the book, Anton is running away. And he's like, just come with me. And I'm about to go. Just go. Anton is, he's vulnerable. He's scared. He runs. And so is he, is, is it Anton that keeps disappointing him? We don't know. But what we do know is that um, at some point, Jude needs to make a decision. Um, he's lost his grace of heart. He can't wield his grace anymore. And so he can't use his sword anymore. He can't use it. He can't even unsheath it. Um, and because his blade is the grace of heart, he is... His heart is conflicted. He doesn't know where his heart lies. And that's why he can't wield his, his blade um so until he figures out who he needs to have faith in which i think ultimately he decides to have faith in himself then he can wield the blade um another big moment in um jude's chapters and his character development is towards the end of the book he's on the boat they I don't think he has the stone yet. I think they're on the way to get the stone. And he's kind of coming to terms with the fact that he's in love with Anton and he's just about to say, screw the order. I'm just going to go with my heart. And Penrose comes to him and she's like, you can't do that. You can't leave the order. We chose this life. And he's like, I didn't choose this life. You did. I was born into it. I was basically told this is my destiny and I don't have a choice. And I think at that moment, he's like, I need to start choosing for myself and I choose the boy I love. So um, all of that is great because that is called critical writing. We just had a little discussion about Jude and choice and faith. And that's how you write a critical book. That's what I mean when I say that this book is not fluffy because Jude's character all by himself is a really good discussion. Um, let's talk about Ephira because Ephira is also another complex character. So Ephira, at um, she's trying to find the chalice. She's also um, <laughs> she's been stuck with she's stuck with Ilya again, and we all know Ilya is a dirty, filthy liar, and he's a manipulator and a user, and he's selfish, and he's just 
using people to get what he wants if Fira knows this she's trying to tell the people she's with don't trust him they're like oh he's so charming he's so nice and he's like guys don't do it but they're not listening to her to her and as the reader you know she fell for it before and as the reader you're like oh geez oh please katie rose please don't let this girl fall for this guy because at one point she's like oh his eyes are so blue his hair is so dark he's so attractive and you're like oh lord please don't let her fall for this boy and when she gets to the daughters of mercy they're like oh sorry homegirl we kicked your sister to the curb to die out in the desert and she's basically like she's dead and so she has nothing to live for she was only the only thing she had in her life that was good was her sister and now she's gone so she thinks and she becomes reckless and one of the first things she does is start to bang Ilya, and people can see that as a trope oh my god she fell for the guy well no I don't see it that way because as I said earlier she needs to face her demons and she's not doing that she's leaning into it she's just like well you know what Baru tried to make me be a better person telling me you know you can't kill anybody anymore I tried really hard but I can't I have nothing left in my life. This is the only thing I know. This is the only thing I can do. And I'm going to go back to killing people. And I'm also going to bang this hot guy that's next to me. And these are the bad decisions that she's making because she's not facing her demons. Ephira is an interesting character for that reason. Um, She basically says that Baru was the only light in her life. She was the only good thing in her life. And why should she try to be a good person when she's not? She doesn't think she's a good person. She doesn't think she's worthy of anything. And at the very end, um, um, Baru has basically, I'll get to the end, but she basically has to go with Baru and because the Herophant is like, if you want me to not kill your sister, Baru, you, she needs to, you're going to do my bidding. And so Ephira goes with her and Ilya also goes and you're like, oh God, here this guy goes again. Cause he's such a snake. He's such a dirty liar. And he's like, oh, Herophant, take me with you. Take me with you. And he's like, I don't trust you. You're a dirty liar. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm useful. And the Herophant is like, okay, but he's really not there for the Herophant. He's in love with Ilya or he's in love with, Bur- oh, good Lord. I can't, so many names. He's in love with Ephira because I think they're a kindred spirit. They're both kind of these damaged people who have kind of latched onto their sibling in some really twisted way. And <laughs> they, they have these awful demons and they can't seem to just like, they don't think, each other are they like Ilya doesn't think he's a good person Ephira doesn't think she's a good person they see the good in each other but they can't see the good in themselves and so I think that Ephira and Ilya are going to be this awesome couple that is just going to help bring down the Arafat and I'm all for it like I love them together now I like Ilya now he was horrible before but I really like him now Baru and Hector um Hector is back he was resurrected by the necromancer king i must have missed how they crossed paths um i don't know how he resurrected him but he did and so now baru and hector are connected and they start to have a real uh, fall in love a little bit but baru says that he doesn't actually love her he's they're just like they're they're disconnected and he thinks he loves her so i wouldn't necessarily 
put I mean I think eventually they are but it will be Hector really is in love with her and not because of some connection that they have and finally Hassan Hassan and Kepri if you notice I have not mentioned Kepri because Kepri sucks so in Hassan's chapter they're in the capital city they're going to try and do something um but something happens they save a little graced family and they end up running to the libraries where the rebels are hiding out and turns out Kepri's brothers are there too and she didn't know that she hasn't seen him for a while and also there's another guy named Arash and he is the leader of the rebels and Arash is he's a really good character I'm really bummed that he died so Hassan says I don't think we saw him die but I think he did because he wore the crown but Harash is graced but he doesn't he's exact opposite the Hierophant the Hierophant thinks that the graceless should be better than everybody else and he's trying to kill off the grace but I think he's really doing because he's a prophet I really think he's doing it because he wants power and so the more people with power you can kill off the more you have but Arash is like I I am graced I'm special he's like looking at um Hassan and like you aren't graced um and you call yourself a prince but you're not even graced ew and he like leaves Hassan out of strategy meetings he he's so manipulative and underhanded and he just smiles in your face and stabs you in the back and Kepri's falling for it and I'm like oh god Kepri hate you and at one point Hassan grows up here and he's like no you're going to do this and Harash like why and he was like because I'm the fucking king that's why and he's like oh okay um he does kind of like do some more shenanigans her um Arash does but he also wants the crown um once again I think he thinks he deserves it um not sure what he was gonna do with it but um in the first book it said that the person who wore the crown it destroyed them and it and it destroyed um Arash too because he had to wear it because Anton needed people with grace to hold the relic to to seal the gate but um it killed him um Hassan doesn't have power he doesn't have grace so he couldn't do it he had to give it to Arash but I liked Arash a lot he was a very interesting character um I don't remember what happened with Kepri I don't think she died but her and Hassan like split they split ways but anyway um yeah those were all the major characters there are a couple of other things that I found interesting in this book um one of them is and I can't believe I missed this the first time through I did make comparisons to the end the age of darkness and Armageddon but I also think that the four harbingers um um Ifira, Anton, uh, Jude, and uh, Hassan. I think they also are they represent the four horsemen of the apocalypse because those are also described as harbingers of death in the Bible. Um so basically this book has some biblical undertones if you didn't catch that. Um you probably did catch it. Like it's it's pretty obvious. I mean there are seven prophets. Seven is also a very big number in the Bible. Um, but the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, like one carries a sword, one carries a crown, one represents death. And, and this book, um, 
Jude has a sword, Hassan has a crown, Ifira is death. So I do think that they are, I do think that she was going for that. Um, which once again, critical, critical reading, it's a critical book. And that's something that your book discussion or your buddy read can sit and discuss. You can sit and discuss how Katie Rose has incorporated biblical symbolism in her book. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. Uh, what else is there? Um, the very end, I don't know if I kind of went into the end of the book. Basically, they're all there. They have the four relics. They're trying to seal the gate. Anton is, oh, I didn't get to it. I, was, I said I was going to go back to it. Anton is a prophet and he has power and he tried to seal the gate, but he, he wasn't powerful enough to do it. And so they needed the, um, they needed, um, so, so Baru, the God inhabited Baru, not the God, God inhabited Baru and started destroying, uh, Bethesda and they needed to stop her or stop God because he was going to destroy everything. I think he was really upset that the prophets killed him. <laughs> I guess he would be. And they needed to control him, but Anton is not strong enough to do it. So they needed the Hierophant because the Hierophant is a prophet. They needed his power to stop God. And he did. And what he did was he bound God in Baru. Baru can control God, but the Hierophant was like, if you don't want me to kill your sister, you're going to tell God what to do. And I need God to do my bidding. And she said, okay. She had to because she didn't want to kill her sister. And so that's why Ifira and Baru and Ilya left with the Hierophant. Now, the nameless woman is also a prophet, but she can't be seen by the Hierophant, by Pallas, because he's going to use her for more power because she's a prophet. She has more power than anybody else. And so she has to stay hidden. She must have seen what was happening when they killed God and didn't like it and was just like, oh, I'm going to do something to stop that. So she, you know, she was, she kind of went against what they were doing. Um, so the prophet or the Arafant doesn't know that the nameless woman is back. The wanderer prophet, she still doesn't have a name. She's called the wanderer. I think there's more to her story. Um, also at the end of the book with Baru, um, when God is inside Baru, she approaches uh, Jude, lifts his chin and says to him, you should have been mine. What the hell was that? I don't know what that means. At first, I thought maybe because Baru is Baru and Hector are connected and so maybe that was Hector saying that, but I'm like, but it was speaking as God, not as Baru. So I don't know, maybe it's that, but is Jude more important than we've been led to believe so far? I don't know why God said that to Jude. I thought that was really odd. And also at the end of the book, there is a big um, earthquake and Jude and... Hector is on one side of the line on one side of the break and Hassan and Anton on the other and so throughout the whole book Anton has basically been telling Jude um 
you need to protect me. I need you to protect me. He's very vulnerable, which is very unusual for a man, for a male character in any book to show any kind of vulnerability or weakness. And Jude's whole job is to protect him. But now they're on opposite sides of this crack in the earth. And they just kind of go their separate ways. And I'm like, oh, no, they're separated now. What the hell is going to happen now? I I'm pretty sure she's not going to hook Jude and Hector up again because I think Hector and Baru are destined to be together and Jude and Anton are destined to be together. But what is Anton going to do now? He has to learn how to defend himself. He can't rely on other people to do it for him. He needs to grow a pair now. It's time to put on your big boy pants. Um, So that ending of that was pretty interesting. I like how she ends her books because everybody is off on their own journey and so now everybody once again is off on their own journey and so I don't know I like how the book ended um am I missing anything I had so many notes I have lost my voice I don't think so I think I picked out everything that I wanted to Hopefully I got all of that correct future dawn when you were listening to this and all the other people that might be confused when they are reading the book as I was. <laughs> um, anyway, I really like the series um, for Katie Rose to be a debut author. This is quite an ambitious book and uh, good on her for putting together this very unique world she has. Um, I hope that people well. If you're listening to this, you've read it. So I hope you're enjoying it as much as I have. If I said anything wrong or if you found a different theory or something, please mention it somewhere. You can follow the Novel Universe on Instagram or um, I am Bang Bang Books everywhere on Twitter, on Goodreads, Facebook. Um, Well, no, not Facebook, but Instagram. I'm on Instagram, too, and Goodreads and uh something else I'm it's like 10 30 at night I'm tired so (laughs) thank you for joining me and I'll catch you this weekend when we podcast the ballad of songbirds and snakes